Hey everybody, thank you for joining me. I hope your weekend is going well. Uh, let me start by um, playing a bit for you from my remarks on Friday at the UN Security Council. I was invited by Russia, which organized a meeting to talk about the OPCW. And if you follow my work, you know that I've been covering extensively this cover-up at the OPCW that's been occurring for years now uh, of a investigation it conducted in Syria, where Syria was accused by the U.S., by insurgent groups of a chemical attack in Douma. But the OPCW has been covering up its own investigation, which actually found that there was no evidence of a chemical attack. And it also uncovered evidence that points to this incident being staged by insurgents on the ground. So... I went before the UN on Friday to discuss this, and uh, if you want to see my full remarks, I'll link to them in the show notes. Let me just play a brief clip from my uh, from my opening and then closing remarks. This is central to the issue of the integrity of the OPCW, but I think most importantly, this is central to the issue of resolving of what happened in Duma. Because we are now nearly five years later since that horrific incident, those horrific images of all those dead bodies. And the investigate the international watchdog that investigated this incident has suppressed its own findings into that incident, leaving those deaths unresolved. And so long as the OPCW continues to suppress the science, the Duma victims and their families will remain without justice. So that's some of uh, what I said in my opening remarks. And then let me go to my closing remarks, because in my opening remarks, one of the things I said was a question. I asked a question to the U.S. and the U.K. and France. I said, will you finally support calls from people like the founding director general of the OPCW, Jose Bustani, uh, to have the OPCW meet with the members of the original Duma team that went to Syria, whose findings were suppressed. And two of members of that team we know about criticized uh, the suppression of their investigation. So I asked them, will you support calls for the OPCW to meet with the members of that team and hear, their, hear what they have to say? And during their remarks, the representative of the U.S., U.K., and France didn't answer me. So in my closing remarks, I pointed that out. And I also pointed out that none of them challenged my main point, which was that the OPCW suppressed its own evidence in this investigation of what happened in Duma. So this is from my closing comments. I want to note that in the responses from states, including the U.S. and U.K., that no one disputed the central claim of my remarks today, which was that the findings of the Duma probe were suppressed, censored. Now, I'm not here to pass any moral judgments, but I just want to note the fact that we have member states who do not contest the documented fact that the Duma findings were suppressed, but yet they oppose any action to address this suppression. Uh, And on that note, I'll also point out that I asked a question of these delegations, the U.S., U.K., and France. I mistakenly asked Germany, but they're not here. Uh, whether or not they will support the call of distinguished diplomats like the first director general of the OPCW, Jose Bustani, and former senior U, uh, UN official, Hans von Sponek, to simply have the OPCW meet with all of the original members of the Duma team and let them, not just the two uh, dissenting inspectors, but all the original members of the Duma team, let them discuss their concerns and let them put forth the evidence that was suppressed. I never got an answer back to that question, which I've now asked 
several times. So that is uh, from my appearance at the UN. And um, it was interesting to be in that room. Uh, I can talk more about it, but I definitely felt uh, a momentum change, uh, not because of anything I said, but because of what was said by the delegate from Brazil. The delegate from Brazil for the first time came out in support of accountability for the OPCW cover-up. And that is a huge shift because prior to this, Brazil has been in the camp of those states that don't want to see any accountability. And I'll have more coverage of that very soon on my podcast and YouTube show Pushback. Uh, but uh, it was, I think, a good experience, at least, and also to get out the just the facts. And I, I tried to address as many facts as I could about the story because it's such a damning story. It's the cover-up of the Duma probe is extensively documented, and I've been fortunate enough to receive leaks from that probe to report on this. And speaking of which, I'll have a new article on this up at the Gray Zone very soon. And uh, I, I did what I could to try to, you know, bring out the most relevant facts. There's a lot more I could have said, and I actually spoke for way longer than I was told, than I was asked to, but um, I felt as if this was important uh, for the world to know. So I was happy to get that opportunity. Speaking of Syria, the um, the dangers of the U.S. role in Syria were laid bare once again this week when there was an attack on a U.S. base uh, that killed a U.S. contractor and injured several others. And uh, this is because the U.S. is occupying one-third of Syria uh, under the pretext of fighting ISIS, but in reality, as I've written about, it's not fighting ISIS at all. It's just there, as other U.S. officials have explained, including Trump, Donald Trump, and others. The U.S. is there to take Syria's oil. And uh, Biden has continued that policy and continue to put troops in harm's way. So that leads to events like this, where U.S. forces come under attack. And so this is how Biden responded uh, in public, he uh, commented after ordering strikes on what he said were Iranian-backed uh, militias operating inside of Syria that he said were responsible for the attack on U.S. troops. Um, before I speak of the progress of uh, this trip, I was informed by my national security team on the way over here that uh, about an attack in Syria yesterday, an Iranian-backed militant uh, groups used an unmanned aerial vehicle <clears throat> to strike one of our facilities, causing several American casualties. One of our citizens tragically died in that attack. And uh, on the flight up yesterday, I spoke to our national security team and ordered an immediate response. <clears throat> Last night, U.S. military forces carried out a series of airstrikes in Syria, targeting those responsible for attacking our personnel. My heart and deepest condolences go out to the family of an American we lost and wish a speedy recovery for those who were wounded. But I'm also grateful for the professionalism of our service members who uh, so ably carried out this response. And uh, to make no mistake, the United States does not, does not emphasize seek conflict with Iran, but be prepared for us to act forcefully, protect our people. That's exactly what happened last night. We're going to continue to okay, keep up our efforts to counter terrorist threats right in the region and partnerships with Canada and other members of the coalition. So that's Biden speaking about how he ordered new strikes in Syria. And again, no one's asking the question, why is the U.S. in Syria to begin with? Um, why are our forces there? And why do we only discuss the U.S. military occupation in Syria only when U.S. forces come under attack? 
it's a pretty dangerous recipe, especially when you have not only Iranian-backed forces operating there, but also Russian forces operating there. It's actually, you know, we talk a lot about Ukraine, obviously, but there is, Syria is another war zone where the world's top nuclear superpowers are on opposing sides and actually have their forces directly on the ground, unlike in Ukraine. So it's dangerous, but yet it's, it's seldom discussed until someone on the U.S. side gets killed. Um, the real reasons for the U.S. occupation of Syria uh, have been explained by U.S. officials. Uh, Trump, of course, said that we're there to take the oil. That's the infamous line. But um, he wasn't the only one to make that point. Uh, here is Dana Struhl. She is now a senior official under Biden. Uh, she handles Syria policy at the Pentagon. And here she is speaking a few years ago before she served in the Biden administration about the real reasons for the U.S. military occupation of Syria. The United States still had compelling forms of leverage on the table to shape an outcome that was more conducive and protective of U.S. interests. And we identified four. So the first one was the one-third of Syrian territory that was owned via the U.S. military with its local partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, this was a light footprint on the U.S. military, only about 1,000 troops over the course of the Syria Study Group's report. And then the tens of thousands of, of forces, both Kurdish and Arab, under the Syrian Democratic Forces. And that one-third of Syria is the resource-rich, it's the economic powerhouse of Syria. So where the hydrocarbons are, which obviously is very much in the public debate here in Washington these days, as well as the agricultural powerhouse. But we argued that it wasn't just about this one-third of Syrian territory that the U.S. military and our military presence owned, both to fight ISIS and also as leverage for affecting the, the overall political process for the broader Syrian conflict. There were three other areas of leverage. So you hear that we're in the uh, resource-rich parts of Syria that we own because of our military occupation, and that gives us leverage to affect the political outcome in Syria, which means regime change. So basically, we didn't have success in overthrowing Assad uh, through our CIA dirty war, one of the most expensive covert wars in history. So now we have leverage by occupying Syria, taking its oil and wheat, and that gives us leverage because we own it. So that's the real reason why U.S. forces are in harm's way. So in short, U.S. forces are in harm's way so that the U.S. government can harm Syrians to the point where they get miserable enough and turn on their government uh, and help us overthrow them. That's pretty much what the policy is. And uh, it's not only Syrian civilians that are expendable, but also U.S. forces. And uh, as we saw recently in Congress, there was a vote put forward by Matt Gates, a Republican, to call for a U.S. withdrawal from Syria. But it got overwhelmingly defeated. Although on the positive side, some Democrats, some progressive Democrats joined with their Republican colleagues to you know, vote for this measure. But still, the overwhelming consensus inside Congress was to keep U.S. forces in Syria and um, I've covered this. Uh, we discussed it here on AM Live, and also I've covered it elsewhere. Uh, but basically, I mean, we heard explanations such as uh, the classic trope that if we don't fight ISIS over there, we're going to have to fight them over here. Even though we're not fighting ISIS over there, because actually it's Syria that's fighting ISIS over there. And of course, regardless, ISIS is not going to come fight us here if we don't occupy Syria. It's just a r ridiculous uh, claim, but yet, unfortunately, that is the dominant one inside Congress right now. Okay, uh, I see we have some callers. Let's take them. 
Johnny GL, go ahead. Hey, how you doing, Aaron? Always uh, appreciate your work. Thanks for hosting the call in every week. Um, always nice to hear from you. Don't forget, Al Qaeda's on our side, per Jake Sullivan. Don't ever That's forget. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, a couple, th- a couple things with recent, uh, you know, tectonic plates shifting in the geopolitical situation in in the region. I wonder if the U.S. is feeling a little bit more cornered than maybe we might have previously. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran have now normalized relations. Uh, who knows what the next step might that be? And uh, Turkey and Syria have uh, held a series of meetings as chaperoned around by the Russians, as I understand. Um, or at least they're planning to have one, right? I think they've at least met, um, you know, senior government officials met. I don't know if Erdogan and Assad have now met face-to-face yet. But I think they're preparing for something like that, right? So uh, is the U.S. kind of getting boxed in? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just wonder how tenable it is to hold hold that, that piece of territory hostage. Um, I mean, I suppose they can, you know, nobody's going to actually start a war with the U.S. to push them out, right? But, um, I mean... Can the Iranians quietly up the pressure uh, through proxy forces in the region? Um, is this the first of such a possible tactic, I wonder? Um, and um, the other thing I wanted to ask about is the governing structure of the UN, at least as, as it as it works with the OPCW, right? You know, as my understanding of the UN, you know, is probably very dated. I know you got the the Security Council with the five permanent members, and the General Assembly is a much more democratic body. But you mentioned. You mentioned Brazil. The Brazilian delegation is showing a, an interest. Um, how many more delegations need to be swayed for there to kind of change things up? So um, appreciate uh, appreciate you taking the answers. I'll I'll hang up and let you do your thing, man. Thanks again. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, the U.S. strategy in Syria is basically they're they're just. At, I mean it's only inviting more attacks on their forces because that is the only leverage that the other states have to get the U.S. out is to try to put enough pressure on the U.S. so that they leave. And the way to do that, as everyone knows, is to uh, make it hard publicly for the Biden administration to continue justifying this policy. And the way you do that is, is you hurt U.S. soldiers. So it's the Biden administration that's putting these people in harm's way uh, so long as it refuses to leave. And I I mean, if this week's events are any indication, um, these militias that are attacking the U.S. forces are are trying that. And this is obviously the first time. So I don't know. I, I do expect that to continue um, because what else is going to happen? Uh, they don't want the U.S. there. There are a lot of forces operating on the ground that are you know, allies of the Syrian government. They just don't want the U.S. in their region. And, and just like... It, like in Iraq, uh, U.S. forces are accordingly going to be targeted. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's something to expect. In terms of um, shifting geopolitics, yeah, I mean, so you had Brazil at this meeting they came out that I was at, came out in support of accountability for the cover-up. And then you have the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, you also have talks now going on between Saudi Arabia and Syria. Saudi Arabia was one of the key funders of the dirty war. Uh, the, CIA turned to, the CIA turned to Saudi Arabia to, to you know, pay for the weapons and fighters as they did in previous dirty wars, like in Afghanistan and Central America. Uh, but now Saudi Arabia is, you know, has a leadership that's taken some independent steps. Uh, and this is the latest if they reconcile with Syria. And um, I can't make predictions, but I, it is an interesting time. Things are changing. Okay, uh, Joe. Hey, I want to first 
congratulate you on that momentum shift that you felt. Uh, that must feel good. It's like some level of vindication. Um, and that, that's gotta feel great. Um, I had my own little moment of vindication in my own little crusade tilting at, you know, the insurmountable forces around us, I guess. I don't mean to sound too self-aggrandizing, but last time I called in, I mentioned I was expecting a letter from McGovern and it came. So, uh, I want to slide into your DMs and find a way to get you a copy of that because it's extraordinarily enlightening in terms of reactionary politics. Um, and somebody else was kind enough to link me an article from 2008 um, about Jim McGovern and how he was one of the first on the ground in Colombia, similar to how he was one of the first on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and later on, it was found that there was a, one of the FARC members, and I, I'm sorry, I need to do much more reading, that was found with a hard drive with, like, direct appeals to Jim, like, for aid. And then shortly thereafter, he's visiting with Nancy Pelosi. Um, uh, Bill, remind me what your letter to McGovern was about. I, I don't remember. Oh, it was, it was all predicated on rail safety. Okay. Um, so the fact that, like, and I'm, you know, just a very quick overview and how it relates to like the reactionary politics is like, I mean, it's exactly that it's pure reactionary politics. Don't worry. We're working on it We're we we're working on it, even though we could have fixed it, you know, when we had house Senate and presidency, we're working on it. Trust us. Uh, but don't worry. It was because Donald's Donald Trump's fault. Um, right. Meanwhile, it's way more important Again, hammering home the fact that the same day that workers strike back had their launch in Boston, he was in Northampton, Massachusetts, a very gentrified area, rattling sabers with you, with Russia and China. And he, he accounted that on his own Instagram. So uh, I guess that's, um, where I'll leave it. And I want to find a good way to get you pictures of that letter. Well, great. Listen, uh, my email is, is on my Twitter profile. It's, it's just my full name, Aaron Matte at protimo.com. So feel free to email Fantastic. Me. I'll send it over a little bit later today. Okay. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. Take care. You too. Okay. Armchair. Hey, Aaron. Um, just wanted to ask you a few questions about um, your comments in the in the UN. Um, like, I think I was just reading... Um, your thread where you were talking uh, on Twitter with Thomas, I think his name is Thomas Phipps from the, I guess from the UK delegation. Mm -hmm. Um, like you were discussing specifically on the point of the pulmonary edema, uh, where you were talking about how, uh, basically the study that was mentioned in the IIT report did not, uh, mention foaming or frothing. Um, so I think there might've been some confusion, like where Thomas Phipps was replying to you and saying that, in fact, that study was mentioning that I think the fact that, so there are, 
different names for these for this kind of medical um, uh, condition. It's called pulmonary edema, and one way of putting it is fulminating pulmonary edema. Another one is like rapid pulmonary edema, uh, and another one is acute pulmonary edema. But they all sort of refer to the medical condition that for which one of the symptoms is the foaming at of the mouth at the mouth or uh, you know frothing. Um, so in the study that you said that did not mention that, in fact, the acute pulmonary edema is mentioned specifically when it comes to chlorine exposure. Um, uh, I think you were just looking, you were searching for the fulminating word um, and because it's just a different way of um, calling it, but it's essentially like if you go and look at like symptoms for acute pulmonary edema, it's going to give you basically frothing or foaming. Um, and then the studies that like that study um, itself cited also talk about pulmonary edema specifically. They use another term, which again is sort of similar, it's called severe pulmonary edema. Um, and like even like if you go back to news reports, I understand like there's sort of it's sort of unclear. Like I understand your point with the toxicologists, the German like the original like uh, you know German toxicologists saying that. Um, the, this particular symptom is not consistent with chlorine exposure, but then there are also like, I mean, I'm just looking at one report from a, um, I don't know if you know about the story. It happened like 20 years ago, South Carolina, Greenwichville train wreck, where there was a huge chlorine gas, um, like poisoning, uh, because of a train, uh, derailment and there, like, there's, I'm, this is just one uh, uh, one uh, like press uh, like media article by by Associated Press citing specifically um, people when that happened uh, foaming at the mouth. Uh, that's just one symptom, and then you have like other other situations where chlorine uh, there was poison like chlorine poisoning. Like one is specifically like. Uh, I'll just give you one other example. It's um, it happened in Aquaba, which is, I believe, Jordan. Yeah, Jordanian port. Also, chlorine um, chlorine exposure, and there were also like people foaming at the mouth. So, I guess maybe I just want to hear your opinion on that. Like, do you think that it's fair to say that there is sort of a debate whether or not this particular symptom is consistent with chlorine exposure, or do you still believe that um, it's unequivocal that it's it's not? Okay, there's some confusion here. I've never said that foaming cannot result from chlorine exposure. And in fact, if you look at the original report from the OPCW team, they say that frothing or foaming has been reported as a result of chlorine exposure. The part that's missing from your analysis here is that there's no chemical weapons expert who will tell you that the reported and observed symptoms of Duma, which is rapid foaming, and rapid death as a result of uh, uh, that rapid foaming and rapid death, that that is consistent with chlorine gas. Because the point is in the time it would take for the foaming to develop, uh, people would have had the chance to escape. And, but if people died immediately, as was alleged in Duma and is alleged by the IIT, uh, then there wouldn't have been time for the foaming to develop. And that was the conclusion of the German toxicologist. So yes, even if you can prove that chlorine gas can produce foaming, which has happened in some cases, 
it's not consistent with the circumstances of Duma. Now, in terms of your point about my exchange with uh, the UK delegate, um, he used he claimed that fulminating pulmonary edema is a reference to foaming, and that's just not true. Uh, fulminating means rapid. Um, and it's not a reference to foaming. Now, you're claiming that acute is, uh, even if that's true, and I'll, I'll have to look for that term in the study, but even if that's true, the key question still has not been resolved about Duma is, are the observed, is the observed rapid foaming where alleged witnesses told the OPCW that there was immediately people started foaming at the mouth and the victims who were photographed, they must have, uh, for, for the chlorine narr- for the whole narrative to be true, they must have foamed, uh, developed foaming quickly because reportedly they died on the spot because they didn't have time to leave. Is that consistent with chlorine gas? And to date, there is no expert, and there's no expert who will tell you that that's consistent. And that's why the Germans reached their conclusion. And that's why, by the way, and that's why, by the way, if you read the IIT report, nowhere will they say that the observed symptom of foaming in Duma is consistent with chlorine gas. They avoid that issue. And I have an article coming about that very soon. Well, but hold on a second. But like in the IIT, there is. Okay, this is one paragraph. Um, I, it's one, so let's see, um, 8, 15. Um, the symptoms of the victims uh, victims are overall consistent with the exposure of chlorine gas in very high concentrations. Following the assessment and corroboration of the relevant material, the toxicologist consulted by the IIT reached the conclusion that the accounts of the victims and medical personnel were consistent with the rapid release of high dosage of chlorine. Um, but you're saying that I, understand that... I understand that, but if you go... I understand that they say that but they're being deceptive. They want you to make it, uh, they want you to think that they're assessing every single symptom. But if you go through the report, and I do this on my article, it comes, it should come out tomorrow. I'm just finishing it now. Um, Whenever the toxicologist weighs in on the symptoms, they point to other symptoms like uh, cough, uh, dizziness and coughing as being the symptoms they observed. Nowhere do they say that we took into account the profuse, the toxicologist took into account the profuse foaming nowhere. The only time they weigh in on, on the foaming is they is when they tell us what it could not be caused by. They say it could not be caused by dust inhalation, which, as I pointed out at the UN, is both obvious and totally irrelevant. Um, we don't care whether or not foaming can be caused by dust inhalation. Nobody thinks that uh, people started foaming at the mouth because of dust. We want to know if the foaming was caused by chlorine. If you can tell us it wasn't caused by dust, why can't you specifically tell us whether or not it was caused by chlorine? So that 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 sentence you read, so that passage you read there, notice there's no mention of foaming in it. All they say is the symptoms of the victims are overall consistent with exposure to chlorine gas, but they're not specifying exactly right there what those symptoms are. Okay, so I, I agree about the dusting, but uh, like in okay in the report, um, I think there is. Yeah, so you, they say overall symptoms, correct? But in my understanding, and maybe you have a different understanding, they're referring to the symptoms that they have previously, um, they, like overall the symptoms that they've previously described. The ones that you've mentioned, I mean, you've mentioned coughing, but they'll also, like, this is six six point one zero zero paragraph. 
Uh, media personnel further recounted the IIT that to the IIT that patients started to arrive at point one between approximately 7.30 and 7.45, both independently and carried by rescuers through the tunnel leading to the medical facility. They added that the several individuals exhibited signs of respiratory distress, including coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath, unconsciousness, as in and in several cases, oral secretions. So as far as I understand, oral secretions would be uh, basically referring to, to the foaming. Or, well, let's or, assume or that. There. Yes, yes. Let's assume that they are referring to foaming. Uh, although it's not clear, actually, there. Uh, let's assume that. Where do you see the IIT's toxicologist saying that those oral secretions are consistent with chlorine gas? There's nowhere. He doesn't, no, he doesn't, he doesn't single them out, but he says. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and given the fact, given the fact that the Germans singled that out as saying this is inconsistent. And given the fact that after the German toxicologists were erased and memory hold and never heard from again until we heard about them in leaks, the, the, the OPCW consulted five more toxicologists and never told us what they concluded either. Uh, I've written, that's also, you can read about that in my upcoming story. Now we get, yeah, no, so, I, I get that. Don't uh, you find it odd? Don't you find it odd that nowhere here is there, is this new replacement toxicologist telling us whether or not the key issue that was flagged before giving us an answer on that? So, yeah. So basically through deceptive language, they're making it appear as if they've waited on that. But they, but they're, what they're covering up is that they never actually wait, do. And whenever the toxicologist is invoked to affirm certain symptoms, the foaming is not there. Instead, it's obvious ones like dizziness, which of course is consistent with chlorine gas. So yeah, so the foam, so he doesn't single out foaming. But I think like when, for foaming, I think you have to just look at the study that was mentioned in the um, in the IIT. So there. It specifically mentions acute pulmonary edema, which which is a medical condition that includes one of the symptoms for it includes foaming. Okay, let's let's assume. Okay, let's assume that um, that when they say acute pulmonary edema, that they're referring to foaming, even though the foaming isn't mentioned there. Which, which I find whatever. Like let's look past that. It still doesn't answer the question of whether uh, it's consistent with rapid foaming. That's the key part that I tried to stress to you. That's the first thing I said to you rapid because for the duma story to work you need to have rapid foaming uh that is the premise of the whole thing that's what alleged witnesses reported and the it is t the it is telling you that these people died within minutes therefore the foaming has to be has to have been rapid um and uh nowhere does this study say that rapid foaming is consistent with chlorine gas uh, and, and you, if you go back to that study you mentioned about graniteville south carolina the train uh, that, I believe, was a delayed onset of pulmonary edema. It was hours after exposure did pulmonary edema develop. And the people who died, they didn't die from pulmonary edema. I believe they died of asphyxiation. Um, and so, uh, and, and I'm not sure even there was, there was reports of frothing then. I mean, it, uh, if I'm wrong, you can correct me, but I don't, when I looked at that, I don't remember seeing that. So, what I'm saying is all the scientific literature and all the experts, there's no one who will tell you that what is alleged to have happened in Duma, which is rapid, profuse foaming and death is consistent with chlorine gas. So, uh, so when you say, so basically, so you, so your hypothesis is that acute pulmonary edema, like that, that could happen. Uh, like basically you would be exposed to chlorine and then like, only okay. several let, hours let me, later. No, 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 no. Let me define this for people because we haven't yet. Pulmonary edema is not 
foaming. Pulmonary edema is the buildup of fluid in the lungs, which you can see in an x-ray. So, so that, that is what pulmonary edema is. Uh, foaming is a symptom or can be a symptom of pulmonary edema, but they're separate things. And uh, you can certainly develop pulmonary edema. You can certainly develop foaming from chlorine gas. What prompted the German toxicologists to rule out chlorine gas is they were saying it couldn't have happened so rapidly. Um, the images they were shown were taken, you know, within uh, two or three hours of the alleged attack. And they, were sa- and they said, no way, that's impossible, scientifically impossible. And what I'm saying is that there's no one either in the OPCW reports or in the scientific literature that has contradicted them. If you can find someone to do that, uh, I'd welcome it. Because it's, it's, it's now, as I tried to, as I said in my remarks at the UN, this is a central issue. Uh, but the, and as we, as you, I hope you can see now from the IT report, and obviously you've read it, you can see there's no specific judgment on that issue. So try to find someone who will contradict the Germans, who's an actual expert. I, 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 I would welcome it. It would, it would help. It would save me a lot of time because I've been trying to find someone too. Fair enough. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Ivana. Hi, Aaron. Uh, how's it going? I'm uh, really, I want to congratulate you on like uh, laying the case at the UN. It was really informative and kind of very clippable also. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to ask you about is um, I remember in 2014 there were two major stories that I can remember. One was the Malaysian Airlines flight that was missing that was just on the news 24-7. And the other one was the, you know, uh, chemical attacks that, you know, uh, prompted the U.S. intervention. Do I have that correct? Yes. Yes. So, and I just remember just talking to everybody, you know, kind of like who was reading those stories and I didn't really have a lot of context. So, you know, uh, it was kind of my first exposure to people's kind of, you know, reaction to that and how they were just really gung-ho about, oh, we need to go in, we need to, you know, they're gassing their own people, (laughs) we need to, you know, just bomb, you know, the Syrian uh, just go into Syria and like save all these people and stuff like that. So, um, in the in the UN um, in the meeting, um, some of the delegations claimed that there have been like nine, I think, uh, chemical attacks, uh, you know, perpetrated by the Syrian government. And I just wanted to ask you, kind of like usually when when you talk about this stuff, you kind of start in the middle with with the Duma attack, because that's what you've been uh, covering, but um, if you could provide some more context on like, you know, 2014 and how that all started and what specific chemical attacks, you know, alleged or otherwise prompted the U.S. to invade and uh, whether there's any information to, you know, prove or disprove those allegations. Sorry, what alleged chemical attacks prompted the U.S. to invade where? Uh, Syria. Oh, okay, well, uh, the U.S. didn't invade Syria over chemical attacks. The, the U.S. invaded Syria because they said uh, that they had to stop ISIS from spreading. Right, right, right. But the the public opinion, to, in order to sway the public opinion, you know, there were a lot of articles written about chemical attacks, and like that was kind of like the pretext to, you know, for, right. You know, to well, okay. So basically, I mean, look, um, the uh, 
I haven't looked at every single alleged incident. This is one thing, I'll, a point I'll make broadly, which is that it's odd that, you know, so Syria has been accused of all these chemical attacks. How can they never hit insurgents, the insurgents who take over entire provinces like Idlib? Uh, somehow these insurgents never get hit with chemical attacks. It's only innocent civilians who do, which right. is very odd. Uh, and also, why would Assad do the one thing he knows would invite even more U.S. military intervention than he was already under? He was already was facing a, a CIA-backed dirty war. And then Obama says, you know, there's a red line. If I see chemical weapons being used, that would change my calculus. And that was a warning that U.S. would military intervene if chemical weapons were used. So why would Assad do the one thing he knows would invite U.S. airstrikes against his government? Right. It just makes no sense. And then you look at all the major incidents – Every single one, there are leaks to undermine the official story. So Guta is like the big one was Guta 2013. That was a sarin attack that killed many people. Um, There were immediately leaks from the U.S. saying that the intelligence actually was not a slam dunk. And that was a deliberate reference to Iraq WMDs, what George Tenet told George W. Bush. And afterwards, Seymour Hersh did some reporting in the the London Review of Books about how Obama was, was given information by his top people including the chair of the Joint Chiefs and also James Clapper, the head of the, uh, the director of national intelligence, that the case against Assad was very weak and, uh, and that basically none of, the, like none of them can sign off on it. So there's that. Then you have Khan Sheikhoun in 2017, another chemical attack. That prompted U.S. strikes by Trump because Trump basically, I think, wanted to show he was a tough guy and that he wasn't Obama. And then Cy Hirsch reported again about, on U.S. leaks that undermined the case for that. And then you have Duma, which is my story, and you have OBCW leaks there. So whenever you have a major allegation, it's constantly been undermined by leaks from either the OBCW or from the U.S. government itself. Yeah, and and that, heard, raises, that raises questions about all the other ones. And then, you know, and then I wrote an article a few months ago about how in all these other investigations, the OBCW has farmed out its task to the White Helmets, which is a group that works with insurgents, is funded by the U.S., U.K., and their allies. And so... For out, those investigations have been compromised by the involvement of a completely non-neutral biased party. So um, there's just it, – it's to me, this is just another pro-war scam, much like the Iraq war. These fake, fake, these fake allegations designed to manufacture public support for intervention. Yeah, and I, I, that's really interesting uh, when – what you pointed out, and I've heard you talk about this before, is that uh, basically the U.S. would sometimes telegraph like what needs to happen in order <laughs> for them to invade, and then magically that thing happens, even though it would make no sense. But I feel like a lot of the American public, and you know, like people who read the New York Times or whatever, that's not really, you know, I, I'm, I'm always trying to understand like whether it's um, kind of intentional, you know, ignoring of any kind of logic, uh, or is it just, you know, that people just believe that that's because it's, you know, the Syrian government is evil, that's something they would do, and there's no, like, critical <laughs> thinking around that. There's, there's a huge investment in propaganda to justify the dirty war. Uh, there, you know, and if you read news accounts, you know, about Syria, almost every single one will tell you that Syria's used chemical weapons, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll just repeat that claim without any uh, skepticism or without acknowledging any of the countervailing evidence. And so, for example, when, uh, whenever Duma is reported on, try to find a reference to the OPCW whistleblowers. Like whenever the, the, you know, the mainstream outlets in the U.S. report on Duma, they don't even mention the existence of the OPCW whistleblowers in their leaks. So it just 
in that context, it's hard for people to know the facts. And it's very easy to believe the, the official narrative. Yeah, I think, I mean, as, as the story kind of develops and, you know, you've done really great reporting, you know, uh, it's, easy, it's easy to kind of like get stuck on, you know, little, not little, but, you know, kind of details, uh, foaming versus not foaming and stuff like that. It would be as, you know, time goes on, it would be good to have some kind of like a larger, you know, provide more context around, you know, what led to the, you know, alleged attack and like what are sort of the similarities. And even in Ukraine, you know, like uh, 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 what was the incident that, you know, where emails came out that they were like, oh, we can't, you know, intervene or whatever until there's like a hundred killed and then magically like a hundred people get killed or something. So yeah, yeah, that, that, that comes from, I don't know if there were emails, but that comes from um, Ivan Kachinovsky, who I've interviewed before. He's a professor. He pointed out that the Maidan massacre, which he says was carried out by pro-coup forces in 2014, he uh, says that that, that, that um, happened after some pro-coup uh, for, uh, forces were told that mm-hmm. for the U.S. and its allies to back a coup, there needs to be basically dead protesters. <laughs> and so, and then, and then yeah. it happened. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for uh, responding. I'm, the point I'm trying to make is sometimes it would be good to kind of like summarize all of that and kind of connect like similar narratives because they're always getting recycled, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you okay. Next caller. Yeah. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. 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 So, um, do you remember a few weeks ago, uh, there was this man who called in and you had a debate with him about Ukraine. Um, he claimed to be in Ukraine and, uh, he said things like, um, there's no more any, um, you know, far right extremism in Ukraine really. And he, um, made a comparison between he says what there is is nationalism and it's he claimed that it's like irish nationalism and uh, he claimed that since 2015 there is like fascism is basically uh, illegal do you remember that call i do but yes i do i do yeah did you give it any thoughts after the airing or because did you <laughs> Uh, did I give? No, I have not given any further thought. Yeah, no. because I was not like online at the time, and it was frustrating because that that is not the analogy between Irish nationalism and Ukrainian nationalism. That that is just not true. It's the ideo- ideologies are different, and the history is also different. He was claiming that historically, the past two hundred years, it's similar to like what Ireland went through. And uh, also the thing you said about 2015, I mean, I mean, what's your thought on, on his idea that after 2015, the, the fascism has been like, you know, it's well, not I, 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 I obviously disagreed and I try to give him examples. And in fact, um, he, he mentioned, so for example, I mentioned, uh, like, I, I quoted some Azov commander, and he said, oh, well, that guy's no longer involved with Azov, and then during the call, um, someone sent me information that actually he was still a part of Azov, and was still involved in, in their operations inside Ukraine, and I, so I said that later on, 
uh, in the call. So, so of course, I, I disagree with them. Yeah, because also, I mean, during this war, I mean, all their like their military's Twitter account and different kinds of officials on on even on BBC talking about children with blonde hair and blue eyes, and and one of them, sure. I don't remember which minister it was, but he said something about we're like a we're a real Slavic tribe, whereas. The Russians, I mean, I don't know what word to use, but he was like, I mean, they're just like a mongrel race or something. So it's, it really isn't factual. And, and, you know, it's, it's crazy what people will do to themselves, um, mentally to like <laughs> pretend to be on the good side and they just, you know, manipulate themselves. So that was, that was frustrating. But, but the, we don't have time to like talk about like Irish nationalism here, but what he said about that, 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 that is totally not true. So I just had to comment on that as well. But uh, yeah. So okay. that was my short comment and thanks for Thank taking you. my call. Thanks for the call. All right. Next caller. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, I just, I actually wanted to call uh, to say something about the couple of weeks ago conversation you had with that guy too. Um, I, by now, I can't remember exactly what you two said about, um, like, Cy Hirsch's article about the Nord Stream bombing. Um, but, like, I think he was saying, like, for some, like, I sent you a message a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you saw it in response to what he was saying, because, like, there's two other instances that I had come across of, like, independent verification of, like, the, like, at least the basic story that um, Cy Hirsch was putting forward in his article um, and so I wondered if you had a chance to see that message or not. I'm sure you get tons of messages. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't, no. Okay, well, if you're interested in, like, <clears throat> there's someone named Gilbert Doctorow who, like, I was listening to an interview with him, and he um, provided some independent verification. And then, like, so I have, like, two links that I sent you in a message just if you're interested in those. Um, and then, oh, right, this is also um, from a couple of weeks ago, like, not this past Friday, but the Friday before the um, video that you and Max did and you were talking about that interview with Cy Hirsch that was like at the like reporters thing where a bunch of people asked some questions. And like at one point you guys mentioned <clears throat> about how the like article in the New York Times just was like such a bad attempt at like <laughs> trying to present like an alternative explanation for like what happened with the Nord Stream bombing. Um, and Max said that like he had wanted to ask Cy about that. Um, but like, I think that someone actually did ask Cy Hirsch about it at one point. I can't, I wasn't able to find like where in that video, like the question is, but like, it seemed to me like Cy Hirsch was basically saying that like, he didn't know it for a fact, but he kind of maybe knew it for a fact, but he didn't want to say that he knew it for a fact that like, because of like Nord Stream, like there's so many people in like the, like intelligence sort of part of like the government that are like against the administration now that they basically were like, yeah, go for it. Like do a really bad story. Like it'll be great, <laughs> you know? And that was possibly why the narrative was like so unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but, yeah I, I, I just yeah. wanted to mention that because like you guys had been pondering about that. And I think that Cy Hirsch did actually discuss that. Um, but okay. yeah, that's all I have yeah. to say. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thank, yeah, thank you. Okay. Gator. Hey, Aaron. Um, congrats on your uh, UN sesh. It was very satisfying to sort of watch uh, sort of the clinical sort of forensic sort of precision with which you went and presented everything. I really appreciated it. Um, 
I'm just wondering what um, you think is a realistic expectation of outcome now from, from that. Oh, I have no expectations. Um, this narrative of serious chemical weapons is so central to the dirty war narrative. Because uh, to justify occupying a country and subjecting it to murderous sanctions, you have to paint the government as being, you know, the embodiment of evil, that it would you know, gas its own people. Because um, how else do you market it to the public? You know, so, so they need this narrative. And they've also invested so much effort into propping it up. And also, I mean, the people involved in the Duma deception are U.S. allies, including the White House. Mm-hmm. So they have, I mean, like the U.S. has directly funded the White House. Millions, tens of millions of dollars. So they need this narrative to sustain itself. And so I, you know, um, I don't think... I don't think the U.S. is going to have is going to change its mind and support transparency at the WCW. But as we saw with Brazil, I mean, they they shifted, and so who knows? Maybe someone else will follow them. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, given given that the OPCW is obviously riddled with corruption, but remains essentially the only prominent um, chemical warfare inspector, and given that Ukraine is experiencing reports of um, chemical weapons usage. Uh, via drone delivery by, you know, infield by at least the Ukrainians subject to confirmation. Is there anything that citizens can do to sort of try to bring, amplify the pressure on the OPCW to essentially follow through on your requests? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I, um, you know, there, there's a group called the Berlin Group 21, which is led by Hans von Sponek, a former senior UN official, and uh, Jose Bustani, uh, the founding mm-hmm. director general. And they've been at the forefront of sort of public calls for accountability. And, uh, you know, maybe they have something else planned. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult. You know, uh, the MCW is very insulated. They have these, you know, fancy headquarters in The Hague and... Um, it's, you know, th- there's no, like, OPCW embassy where people can go and protest. So I don't know. But, uh, I mean, what I do know is that um, this issue is not going away. And, and I mm-hmm. do think there will be more opportunities soon to have this to have this discussed publicly. Is it just, just quickly then, is, if there's any way that on the end of your article you can put some kind of contact organizations that people can literally get in touch with to express support and then maybe be directed in a letter writing campaign or whatever to somebody in the OPCW to say, look, we know what you've done. We're not happy with it. You know, and at least, at least, you know, put some kind of external pressure, citizen based pressure on that might be just a useful thing for people who are so motivated. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That's a great idea. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Appreciate it. All the best to you. Likewise. All right, Brady. What's up, Aaron? I like to provide a little contrast to the narrative that seems to be so hard to disrupt in that during the last elections, I think Bernie Sanders, the discrepancy in the um, pre-elections between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were like 14 percent, which is like more than double the 7 percent discrepancy that we use to justify the invasion of other countries for things like, you know, uh, lack of democracy. And um, so by their own metric, they should be applauding the January 9th invaders for invading our own country over a metric that was uh, double what they used to justify the invasion of other countries, which I don't I don't support the January 6th people. I'm just saying by their own metric, um, they should be applauding them. Okay, thanks, Brady. 
Uh, armchair has returned. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I, I figured since there's not many callers today, I might just ask you one more thing. So I was just looking at the at the yeah, study uh, again that was cited by the IIT, specifically high level exposure. You were saying that um, it's important, specifically um, rapid death and um, symptoms that are consistent, like foaming, etc. So this is for this is paragraph from that study, high-level exposures, concentrations of about 400 ppm and beyond are generally fatal over 30 minutes and at 1,000 ppm and above. Fatality ensues within only a few minutes. Um, a spectrum of clinical findings may be present in those exposed at high levels, um, blah, blah, blah. This can result in asphyxia with respiratory failure, pulmonary edema, likely acute pulmonary hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. So this was just in the study. And it mentions like pretty quick, quick death. Um, the other study that does it um, mention rapid foaming? Well, so no, you're, it doesn't. But I think the point is that pulmonary edema is like they're not gonna they're not gonna mention one symptom because it's a symptom of a specific medical condition. But you don't necessarily foam profusely from the mouth if you have pulmonary edema. Um, That's right. No, you, you're you're correct. Yeah, you don't. I mean, like like, like pulmonary edema is is the buildup of fluid you can see in an X-ray. Uh, inside the lungs, right? So um, this is the question, you know, of, and again, in, in Duma, we saw foaming. And that's why the OPCW was, team was so confused because foaming is classic sign of nerve agent exposure, you know, rapid death, rapid foaming. Um, chlorine gas, it's not. And that's why they went to Germany. And that's why people wanted to cover up this probe, erase what the Germans concluded is because it undermined the case of this is chlorine. And again, so, okay, so, so, so that study doesn't have anything about rapid foaming. Um, does the other study? Well, it, is, it, isn't, it doesn't exclude it either. It just, says, it just says that the medical condition that is associated in part with that symptom is present. But it doesn't, it doesn't say, but it doesn't single it out, but it also doesn't say any, it doesn't mention specific symptoms. Okay, well, so which then underscores my point that there's no scientific literature so far that will tell you that rapid foaming is consistent with chlorine gas. Um, rapid, fo rapid profuse foaming and rapid death is consistent with, with chlorine gas. If you want to send me that study, I'm happy to look at it. But again, it's like, um, you know, just because it lists a condition that can result in the symptom we're talking about doesn't mean that they're affirming that that symptom is consistent. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, looks like we're out of callers, and we can leave it there. Um, so thanks, to everybody, for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, stay tuned. So I will have an article out very soon on the OPCW story, and I'll also have more coverage of it up at Pushback. Uh, oh, I see one more caller, so let's, let's let, let, no, I don't anymore. He's gone. Okay. All right. So, yes, yeah, stay tuned for more coverage of the WCW scandal. Thanks, everybody, for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.